Chapter 6 Two Coroner's Inquests There had not been since the last general election, when George Augustus Slashington, the Liberal member, had been returned against strong conservative opposition in a blaze of triumph and a shower of rotten eggs and cabbage stumps. There had not been since that great day such excitement in Slopperton as there was on the discovery of the murder of Mr. Monahue Harding. A murder was always a great thing for Slopperton. When John Boggins, Weaver, beat out the brains of Sarah, his wife, first with the heel of his clog and ultimately with a poker, Slopperton had a great deal to say about it. Though, of course, the slaughter of one hand by another was no great thing out of the factories. But this murder at the Black Mill was something out of the common, uncommonly cruel, cowardly, and unmanly, and moreover occurring in a respectable rank of life. Round that lonely house on the Slopperton Road, there was a crowd and a bustle throughout the short, foggy day on which Richard Marwood was arrested. Gentlemen of the press were there, sniffing out, with miraculous acumen, particulars of the murder, which as yet were known to none but the heads of the Slopperton police force. How many lines at three half-pence per line these gentlemen wrote concerning the dreadful occurrence, without knowing anything whatever about it? No one unacquainted with the mysteries of their art would dare to say. The two papers which appeared on Friday had accounts varying in every item, and the one paper which appeared on Saturday had a happy amalgamation of the two conflicting accounts, demonstrating thereby the triumph of paste and scissors over penny a liner's copy. The head officials of the Slopperton police, attired in plain clothes, went in and out of the black mill from an early hour on that dark November day. Every time they came out, though none of them ever spoke, by some strange magic, a fresh report got current among the crowd. I think the magical process was this. Some one man whispered to his nearest neighbor his suggestion of what might have been revealed to them within. And this whispered suggestion was repeated from one to another till it grew into a fact, and was still repeated through the crowd, while, with every speaker, it gathered interest until it grew into a series of imaginary facts. Of one thing the crowd was fully convinced. That was that those grave men in plain clothes, the Slopperton detectives, knew all, and could tell all, if they only chose to speak. And yet I doubt if there was beneath the stars more than one person who really knew the secret of the dreadful deed. The following day, the coroner's inquisition was held at a respectable hostelry near the Black Mill, whither the jury went, accompanied by the medical witness, to contemplate the body of the victim. With solemn faces, they hovered round the bed of the murdered man. They took depositions, talked to each other in low, hushed tones, and exchanged a few remarks, in a low voice, with the doctor who had probed the deep gashes in that cold breast. All the evidence that transpired at the inquest only amounted to this. The servant, Martha, rising at six o'clock on the previous morning, went, as she was in the habit of doing, to the door of the old East Indian to call him, he being always an early riser. 
and getting up even in winter to study by lamplight. Receiving, after repeated knocking at the door, no answer, the old woman had gone into the room, and there had beheld, by the faint light of her candle, the awful spectacle of the Anglo-Indian, lying on the floor by the bedside, his throat cut, cruel stabs upon his breast, and a pool of blood surrounding him. The cabinet in the room broken open and ransacked, and the pocketbook and money which it was known to contain missing. The papers of the murdered gentleman were thrown into confusion and lay in a heap near the cabinet. And as there was no blood upon them, the detectives concluded that the cabinet had been rifled prior to the commission of the murder. The Lasker had been found lying insensible on his bed in the little dressing room, his head cruelly beaten, and beyond this there was nothing to be discovered. The Lasker had been taken to the hospital where little hope was given by the doctors of his recovery from the injuries he had received. In the first horror and anguish of that dreadful morning, Mrs. Marwood had naturally inquired for her son, had expressed her surprise at his disappearance, and when questioned had revealed the history of his unexpected return the night before. Suspicion fell at once upon the missing man. His reappearance after so many years on the return of his rich uncle, his secret departure from the house before anyone had risen, everything told against him. Inquiries were immediately set on foot at the turnpike gates on the several roads out of Slopperton, and at the railway station from which he had started for Gardenford by the first train. In an hour... It was discovered that a man answering as Richard's description had been seen at the station. Half an hour afterwards, a man appeared, who deposed to having seen and recognized him on the platform, and deposed, too, to Richard's evident avoidance of him. The railway clerks remembered giving a ticket to a handsome young man with a dark mustache in a shabby suit, having a pipe in his mouth. Poor Richard! The dark mustache and pipe "'tracked him at every stage. "'Dark mustache, pipe, shabby dress, tall handsome face. "'The clerk who played upon the electric telegraph wires, "'as other people play upon the piano, "'sent these words shivering down the line to the Gardenford station. "'From the Gardenford station to the Gardenford police office, "'the words were carried in less than five minutes.' In five minutes more, Mr. Jinks, the detective, was on the platform, and his dumb assistant, Joe Peters, was ready outside the station, and they were both ready to recognize Richard the moment they saw him. Oh, wonders of civilized life! Cruel wonders, when you help to track an innocent man to a dreadful doom! Richard's story of the letter only damaged his case with the jury, the fact of his having burned a document of such importance seemed too incredible to make any impression in his favor. Throughout the proceedings, there stood in the background a shabbily dressed man with watchful, observant eyes and a mouth very much on one side. This man was Joseph Peters, the scrub of the detective force of Gardenford. He rarely took his eyes from Richard, who, with pale, bewildered face, disheveled hair, and slovenly costume, looked perhaps as much like guilt as innocence. 
The verdict of the coroner's jury was, as everyone expected it would be, to the effect that the deceased had been willfully murdered by Richard Marwood, his nephew, and poor Dick was removed immediately to the county jail on the outskirts of Slopperton, there to lie till the assizes. The excitement in Slopperton, as before observed, was immense. Slopperton had but one voice, a voice loud in execration of the innocent prisoner, horror of the treachery and cruelty of the dreadful deed, and pity for the wretched mother of this wicked son, whose anguish had thrown her on a sickbed, but who, despite of every proof, repeated every hour, expressed her assurance of her unfortunate son's innocence. The coroner had plenty of work on that dismal November day, for from the inquest on the unfortunate Mr. Harding, he had to hurry down to a little dingy public house on the river's bank, there to inquire into the cause of the untimely death of a wretched outcast found by some bargemen in the sloshy. This sort of death was so common an event in the large and thickly populated town of Slopperton that the coroner and the jury, lighted by two guttering tallow candles with long wicks at four o'clock on that dull afternoon, had very little to say about it. One glance at that heap of wet, torn, and shabby garments, one half-shuddering, half-pitying look at the white face, blue lips, and damp, loose auburn hair, and a merciful verdict, found drowned. One juryman, a butcher, we sometimes think them hard-hearted, these butchers, lays a gentle hand upon the auburn hair and brushes a lock of it away from the pale forehead. Perhaps so tender a touch had not been laid upon that head for two long years, perhaps not since the day when the dead woman left her native village and a fond and happy mother for the last time smoothed the golden braids beneath her daughter's Sunday bonnet. In half an hour the butcher is home by his cheerful fireside, and I think he has a more loving and protecting glance than usual for the fair-haired daughter who pours out his tea. No one recognizes the dead woman. No one knows her story. They guess at it as a very common history, and bury her in a parish burying ground, a damp and dreary spot not far from the river's brink, in which many such as she are laid. Our friend, Jabez North, borrowing the Saturday's paper of his principal in the evening after school hours, is very much interested in the accounts of these two coroner's inquests. Chapter 7 The Dumb Detective, A Philanthropist The dreary winter months pass by. Time, slow of foot to some, and fast of wing to others, is a very chameleon. Such different accounts do different people give of him. He is very rapid in his flight, no doubt, for the young gentleman from Dr. Tappenden's home for the Christmas holidays. Rapid enough, perhaps, for the young gentleman's papas, who have to send their sons back to the academy armed with Dr. Tappenden's little account, which is not such a very little account either, when you reckon up all the extras, such as dancing, French, gymnastics, drill sergeant, hair-cutting, stationery, servants, and pew at church. Fast enough, perhaps, is the flight of time for a la major, 
who goes home in a new suit of mourning, and who makes it sticky about the cuffs and white about the elbows before the holidays are out. I don't suppose he forgets his little dead brother, and I dare say, by the blazing hearth, where the firelight falls dullest upon his mother's black dress, he sometimes thinks, very sadly, of the little grave out in the bleak winter night on which the snow falls so purely white. But cakes and ale are eternal institutions, and if you or I, reader, died tomorrow, the baker would still bake, and Messrs. Barclay and Perkins would continue to brew the ale and stout for which they are so famous, and the friends who were sorriest for us would eat, drink, aye, and be merry too before long. Who shall say how slow of foot is time to the miserable young man awaiting his trial in the dreary jail of Slopperton? Who shall say how slow to the mother awaiting in agony the result of that trial? The assizes take place late in February, so through the fog and damp of gloomy November, through long, dark, and dreary December nights, through January, frost and snow, Richard paces up and down his narrow cell, and broods upon the murder of his uncle and of his trial which is to come. Ministers of religion come to convert him, as they say. He tells them that he hopes and believes all they can teach him, for that it was taught him in years gone by at his mother's knee. The best proof of my faith, he says, is that I am not mad. Do you think, if I did not believe in an all-seeing providence, I should not go stark staring mad, when night after night, through hours which are as years and duration, I think and think of the situation in which I am placed, till my brain grows wild and my senses reel. I have no hope in the result of my trial, for I feel how every circumstance tells against me. But I have hope that heaven, with a mighty hand and an instrument of its own choosing, may yet work out the saving of an innocent man, the dumb detective Peters had begged to be transferred from Gardenford to Slopperton, and was now in the employ of the police force of that town. A very little account, this scrub among the officials. His infirmity, they say, makes him scarcely worth his salt, though they admit that his industry is unfailing. So the scrub awaits the trial of Richard Marwood, in whose fortunes he takes an interest which is in no way abated since he spelt out the words not guilty in the railway carriage. He had taken up his slopperton abode in a lodging in a small street of six-roomed houses on Little Gulliver Street. At number five Little Gulliver Street, Mr. Peter's attention had been attracted by the announcement of the readiness and willingness of the occupier of the house to take in and do for a single gentleman. Mr. Peters was a single gentleman, and he accordingly presented himself at number five, expressing the amiable desire of being forthwith taken in and done for. The back bedroom of that establishment, he was assured by its proprietress, was an indoor garden of Eden for a single man, and certainly looked at by the light of such advantages as a rent of four and sixpence a week, a sofa bedstead, that deliciously innocent white lie in the way of furniture, which never yet deceived anybody, a Dutch oven, an apparatus for cooking anything, from a pheasant to a red herring, and a little high art in the way of a young gentleman, in red and yellow, making honorable proposals to a young lady 
in yellow and red, in picture number one, and the same lady and gentleman perpetuating themselves in picture number two by means of a red baby in a yellow cradle. Taking into consideration such advantages as these, the one pair back was a paradise calculated to charm a virtuously-minded single man. Mr. Peters, therefore, took immediate possession by planting his honest gingham in a corner of the room and by placing two and sixpence in the hands of the proprietress by way of deposit. His luggage was more convenient than extensive, consisting of a parcel in the crown of his hat containing the lighter elegancies of his costume, a small bundle in a red cotton pocket handkerchief which held the heavier articles of his wardrobe, and a comb which he carried in his pocketbook. The proprietress of the indoor Eden was a maiden lady of mature age with a sharp nose and metallic patterns. It was with some difficulty that Mr. Peters made her understand, by the aid of pantomimic gestures and violent shakings of the head, that he was dumb but not deaf, that she need to be under no necessity of doing violence to the muscles of her throat, as he could hear her with perfect ease in her natural key. He then, still by the aid of pantomime, made known a desire for pencil and paper, and on being supplied with these articles, wrote the one word, baby, and handed that specimen of calligraphy to the proprietress. That sharp-nosed damsel's maidenly indignation sent new roses to join the permanent blossoms at the end of her olfactory organ, and she remarked, in a voice of vinegar, that she let her lodgings to single men, and that single men, as were single men, and not impostors, had no business with babies. Mr. Peters again had recourse to the pencil. Not mine, foundling, to be brought up by hand, would pay for food and nursing. The maiden proprietress had no objection to a foundling, if paid for its requirements. Like children in their places, would call cuppins, and did call cuppins. A voice at the bottom of the stairs responded to the call of Cuppins, a boy's voice most decidedly. A boy's step upon the stairs announced the approach of Cuppins, and Cuppins entered the room with a boy's stride and a boy's slouch. But for all this, Cuppins was a girl. Not very much like a girl about the head, with that shock of dark rough short hair. Not much like a girl about the feet, in high-lows with hobnailed soles. "'but a girl for all that, as testified by short petticoats "'and a long blue pinafore, ornamented profusely "'with every variety of decoration "'in the way of three-cornered slits and grease spots. "'Cuppins was informed by her mistress "'that the gent had come to lodge, "'and moreover that the gent was dumb. "'It is impossible to describe Cuppins' delight "'at the idea of a dumb lodger. "'Cuppins had known a dumb boy "'as lived three doors from mother's, "'Cuppin's mother understood. "'This dumb boy was vicious, "'and when he was gone again, howled, horrid. "'Was told that the gent wasn't vicious and never howled, "'and seemed, if anything, disappointed. "'Understood the dumb alphabet "'and had conversed in it for hours "'with the aforesaid dumb boy. "'The author, as omniscient, "'may state that Cuppin's and the vicious boy "'had some love passages in days gone by.' Mr. Peters was delighted to find a kindred spirit capable of understanding his dirty alphabet 
and explained his wish that a baby, a foundling he intended to bring up, might be taken in and done for as well as himself. Cuppins doted on babies, had nursed nine brothers and sisters, and had nursed outside the family circle at the rate of fifteen pence a week for some years. Cuppins had been out in the world from the age of twelve and was used up as to Slopperton at sixteen. Mr. Peters stated by means of the dirty alphabet, more than usually dirty today, after his journey from Gardenford, whence he had transplanted the gingham umbrella, the bundle, parcel, pocketbook, and comb, that he would go and fetch the baby. Cuppins immediately proved herself an adept in the art of construing this manual language, and nodded triumphantly a great many times in token that she understood the detective's meaning. The baby was apparently not far off, for Mr. Peters returned in five minutes with a limp bundle smothered in an old pea-jacket, which on close inspection turned out to be the foundling. Mr. Peters had lately purchased the pea-jacket second-hand and believed it to be an appropriate outer garment for a baby in long clothes. The foundling soon evinced signs of a strongly marked character, not to say a vindictive disposition, and fought manfully with cuppins, smiting that young lady in the face and abstracting handfuls of her hair with an address beyond his years. "'Ain't he playful?' asked that young person, who was evidently experienced in fretful babies and indifferent to the loss of a stray tress or so from her luxuriant locks. "'Ain't he playful? Pretty innocent?' Look, he'll make the place more cheerful. In corroboration of which prediction the foundling set up a dismal wail, varied with occasional chokes and screams. Surely there never could have been, since the foundation stones of the hospitals for abandoned children in Paris and London were laid, such a foundling to choke as this foundling. The manner in which his complexion would turn from its original sickly sallow to a vivid crimson, from crimson to dark blue and from blue to black, was something miraculous. And Cuppins was promised much employment in the way of shakings and pattings on the back to keep the foundling from an early and unpleasant death. But Cuppins, as we have remarked, liked a baby, and indeed would have given the preference to a cross-baby, a cross-baby being, as it were, a battle to fight, and a victory to achieve. In half an hour she had conquered the foundling in a manner wonderful to behold. She laid him across her knee while she lighted a fire in the smoky little grate, for the indoor Eden offered a Hobson's choice to its inhabitants, of smoke or damp, and Mr. Peters preferred smoke. She carried the infant on her left arm while she fetched a red herring, an ounce of tea from the Chandler's at the corner, put him under her arm while she cooked the herring and made the tea, and waited on Mr. Peters at his modest repast, with the foundling choking on her shoulder. Mr. Peters, having discussed his meal, conversed with Cuppins as she removed the tea things. The alphabet by this time had acquired a piscatorial flavor from his having made use of the five vowels to remove the bones of his herring. "'That baby's a rare fretful one,' says Mr. Peters, with rapid fingers. "'Cuppins had nursed a many fretful babies. "'Orphans was generally fretful, supposed the foundling was an orphan. "'Poor little chap, yes,' said Peters. "'He's had his trials, though he's a young one. "'I'm afraid he'll never grow up a teetotaler. 
"'He's already had a little too much of the water already. "'Has had too much of the water? "'Cuppins would very much like to know the meaning of this observation. "'But Mr. Peters relapses into profound thought "'and looks at the foundling, still choking, "'with the eye of a philanthropist "'and almost the tenderness of a father.' He, who provides for the young ravens, had, perhaps in the marvelous fitness of all things of his creation, given to this helpless little one a better protector in the dumb scrub of the police force than he might have had in the father who had cast him off, whoever that father might be. Mr. Peters presently remarks to the interested Cuppins that he shall educate the foundling and bring him up to his own business. "'What is his business?' asked Cuppins naturally. "'Detective,' Mr. Peters spells, embellishing the word with an extraneous K. "'Oh, police,' said Cuppins. "'Crikey, how jolly! Shouldn't I like to be a policeman and find out all about this horrid murder?' Mr. Peters brightens at the word murder, and he regards Cuppins with a friendly glance. "'So you take an interest in this murder, do you?' he spells out. "'Oh, don't I? I bought a Sunday paper. "'Shouldn't I like to see that there young man "'as killed as his uncle's was? That's all.' "'Mr. Peters shook his head doubtfully, "'with a less friendly glance at Cuppins. "'But there were secrets and mysteries of his art "'he did not trust at all times to the dirty alphabet, "'and perhaps his opinion on the subject "'of the murder of Mr. Monahue Harding was one of them. "'Cuppins presently fetched him a pipe,' and as he sat by the smoky fire, he watched alternately the blue cloud that issued from his lips and the clumsy figure of the damsel pacing up and down with the foundling, asleep after the exhaustion attendant on a desperate choke upon her arms. If, mused Mr. Peters, with his mouth very much to the left of his nose, if that there baby was growed up, he might help me to find out the rights and wrongs of this here murder, who so fit, or who so unfit, which shall we say? If in the wonderful course of events this little child shall ever have a part in dragging a murderer to a murderer's doom, shall it be called a monstrous and a terrible outrage of nature, or a just and a fitting retribution? Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.